Well, good morning. Man, it is good to see you guys. It is. Uh, I think my favorite part, actually, about seeing you guys is that there are faces in this room that I do not recognize. And I've been gone eight months, and in what has been a challenging year for the church globally, it's encouraging to see the church growing locally. And so I'm encouraged just seeing some of your faces. I've had the opportunity to say hi to some of you. Uh, my wife is sitting there. Sarah, can you raise your hand, please? Please come say hi to us. Give us a hug um, if, if, you, if you feel comfortable to. Uh, we have been double vaxxed, so we are okay with hugs. If you are not, we totally understand and, and, and love you, and we'll give you a high five, air five, whatever. But please come say hi. Uh, we would love to see you, chat with you, hear uh, how the Lord has been working here, and, and give you a little bit more details on how the Lord has been working in our lives. Um, like Mike said, for those of you who I haven't had the opportunity to meet before, my name is John Watts. Um, I had the opportunity to be a, a member here for quite some time. This was really like the first church that I started coming to uh, after my conversion in 2012. And I had the opportunity to pastor here and serve as student pastor for a few years. And uh, you guys have sent our family out uh, to prepare for future ministry in the Charlottesville, Virginia area at an Acts 29 church called Portico. Uh, while I've been there, I've been working on a master's degree, uh, getting that finished up, and uh, things have been going well for our families. We've transitioned. Obviously, with COVID, it's been difficult. Uh, the first few months were exceptionally painful, and yet the Lord has been uh, good to us and has blessed us through the people at that church in various ways. Um, this morning, uh, we're going to be in Luke 17. Uh, we're going to continue the series that you guys have been doing, walking through the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to Luke 17. We're going to be in the first 10 verses of Luke 17. And as you're turning there, I just want to kind of give you uh, a little insight into what our family is thinking to, praying through right now, uh, so you can pray with us. Um, a pastoral residency is an opportunity for us to serve alongside a pastoral team, primarily from a posture of learning and not leading. And yet at the same time, we get the opportunity to do a lot of leadership things, uh, teaching, preaching, um, encouraging, equipping uh, church members, things like that. But um, we know that this residency for our family is it's temporary, right? Um, it was originally designed to be a two-year residency. Uh, they extended it an extra year for me because we just need an extra year of help, right? We need that super senior extra year, uh, by God's grace, to help us figure out what we're going to do. Uh, and yet at the same time right now, we're realizing that that extra year is almost over. We've been there for eight months, and we're trying to figure out what in the world we're going to do when this residency is done in Virginia. And so if you would please join us in prayer, uh, just as it comes to mind, maybe even right now as I'm talking, just say a little prayer for our family. Ask the Lord to give us clarity. Ask the Lord to give us understanding. Ask the Lord to give us conviction on, on where he wants us to go and serve as a family in ministry long term. Uh, there is legitimately no place that is off the table for our family as long as it is in the will of our Lord Jesus. And so please pray with us as we try to figure all of that out together as a family over the coming months. Anyway, Luke 17. So uh, the fun part about jumping into the middle of a series like this is I have absolutely no idea where... Uh, our, our pastors here have kind of taken us as, as you guys have gone through the Gospel of Luke. But just looking through kind of the, the, the Gospel so far and where we're at, um, we're kind of on this road trip, right? Uh, Jesus in Luke 9, Luke goes out of his way to make a point to say that Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And we know 
because you know we, we have the whole Bible, and this happened thousands of years ago, we know that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. And so we, we, Luke is really intentional to give us this insight into some of the things that Jesus did in his, his final months of ministry. And Luke gives us kind of a, a magnifying glass into this small period of Jesus' life, and yet this massively significant moment for the church as we see the things that Jesus is intentionally doing with his disciples as he is going to Jerusalem to die. And so you guys have been kind of in this section that really started back in, in, in Luke 11, Luke 12, where Jesus has, has really been um, kind of getting at the, the Pharisees and the religious teachers a little bit, right? He, 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 you, you kind of see in Luke, Jesus is kind of going around. There's multiple dinner parties that are happening. And one particular dinner party that, that happens in the beginning of Luke 15, where he's at a Pharisee's house. And they're getting mad at him because he's spending a lot of time with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and, and poor people and, and blind, lame people. And he's healing people on the Sabbath. And he's kind of breaking up all of the, the Pharisees' paradigms or, or, or categories for how they see the Bible. And how they apply those teachings to their everyday way of life as, as teachers of the law and leaders of the Jewish people. And as Luke is kind of going through this, you see this beautiful thread that's running throughout his entire gospel where Jesus is intentionally exalting the humble and humbling the exalted. And that's kind of where I want the text to meet us this morning. It's, it's, it's here where we actually see that, that the gospel of Luke is going to reveal two kinds of people in here this morning. The, the, the exalted and the humble. For the exalted... The Gospel of Luke is very offensive. It's very offensive. In fact, you can actually see Jesus earlier in, in chapter 16. He gives this, this parable, and there's this note that it says that the Pharisees, in, in Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him because they knew that Jesus was talking about them. And so for the, for the, for the exalted, what Jesus was saying was, was offensive. And yet for the humble... The gospel of Luke is a, is a promise of life. The question confronting both you and me as we open up to Luke 17 this morning is, is, is asking where we are. are. Are we people who are willing to humble ourselves in dependence at the, at the feet of Jesus? Or are we people who, who exalt ourselves over, over our neighbor and those who are maybe sitting next to us right now? I was talking to a friend a few months ago, and um, as we talked, the, the kind of conversation turned to my marriage. He was asking me how my marriage was going. He was asking how things were going. He had known that we had just kind of transitioned down to Virginia. This was probably back in like January, February. And as we were ha having a conversation, um, I, I told him that I just noticed that there was this really interesting, unique, and sharp criticism in me toward my wife. I had just a, a critical spirit towards Sarah. And as I'm, I'm sharing this with him, like a good friend, he just kind of leans in and he's like, hey, can, can, we, can we talk about that for a minute? And so I, you know, I gave him permission to just kind of ask me some hard questions. And after just a few minutes, I started to see something really, really interesting about my own criticism for my wife. You see, I was putting my wife down because I was lifting myself up. You see, the interesting thing, the problem wasn't just that I had criticism for my wife. The problem was that I had an overestimation of my own maturity 
And it led me to approach my wife in this posture, posture that kind of told her she needed to catch up. Like, How much of a jerk does that sound like, right? And, and yet the Lord, through this conversation, was, was, was humbling me. He was actually helping me see that my attitude reflects very much the attitude that we find in, in these chapters of Luke when we see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. And I, I just wonder as we approach the text if we're willing to see where we might be more similar to the Pharisees than we would like to admit. You see, the interesting thing about the Pharisees in the Bible is they were the religious folks. And I'm a religious guy. I love the Bible. And so just by that standard alone, I'm more inclined to drift toward the, the categories, the attitude and the posture of a Pharisee personally. And I hope that we would be willing to examine ourselves and just see where we're at there this morning. So as we come to Luke 17, Jesus is calling the disciples to a, a way of devotion that reflects his character and not the character of the Pharisees. You see, Christ wants to recreate a new people. He called 12 disciples to begin following him. Why? Because in, in the Old Testament, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And so what, what the Bible is showing us is that Jesus' work, Jesus' call, Jesus' discipleship is forming and shaping a new kind of people. A people who have not existed before on this earth. That people is the church. It's us. A new kind of humanity that is humbly dependent on his spirit and, and willing to carry out the kingdom of God into the rest of the world. To the nations, like we just heard the LeBlanc family and their team is doing. And, and you guys have gotten behind that as a church because you have conviction that we need to get the gospel to the nations. And so Jesus has made us new people who live as faithful servants. If you're a note taker, that, I mean, that's what we're talking about today. That Christ has made us new people, and then as new people, we live as faithful servants. This is what it means to be a successful Christ follower. And so be beginning in verse 1, I just want to read these 10 verses, and then we're just going to kind of dig through this a little bit over the next few minutes. So Jesus, uh, in Luke 17, verse 1, we're going to go through verse 10. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to follow along. Um, I'm reading out of the ESV this morning, so if it differs from your translation a little bit, that's okay. Uh, but here we go. Luke 17. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than, he, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns, against, turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done 
what is our duty. So Jesus has just given this parable, a teaching to the disciples about this rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. You guys talked about this last week. And the, the point of that kind of parable, that story is pretty simple, right? When you, when you get to the end, there's this, there's this really interesting, odd, kind of strange interaction between Abraham and this rich man. And, and what does the rich man say? He says, let me go back and let me, let, me, let me go back and send somebody to tell my brothers about this place so that they can, you know, give to the poor and, and have mercy to the poor and not live like me. And Abraham says, they, ha- they have Moses and the prophets. If they, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, referring to the entirety of the Old Testament, they will not listen if someone rises from the grave. And so the, the, the point of the parables is actually rather simple. It's that... Uh, The scriptures are actually enough to reveal to us what God's will is. The scriptures are sufficient for us to know what God wants us to do. The question isn't whether or not the scriptures give us clarity on how to follow Jesus, how to be faithful to the Lord, to know what God wants for us as his people. It's more of a question of whether or not we have the eyes to see or the desire to respond to God's revelation in the scriptures with obedience. And so Jesus kind of transitions out of that parable into this passage, immediately saying to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And so what we see here is the new people that that Jesus is creating, that Jesus is making, that God is forming, that they're watchful of temptation. New people are watchful of temptation. And they're watchful for it in a couple ways that we see here. First, Jesus is is thoroughly saying temptations are sure to come, meaning that there is a a real presence and possibility for every Christian in this room to be led into temptation. Amen? Like if you've been following Jesus for any period of time, you know that you can be prone to wander. And so we see here that even Jesus is saying temptations to sin are sure to come. Now, the, 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 the big idea, the big point of what he's driving home in this verse is, is more of a warning to the disciples to not be temptations to others. But we cannot miss the, the need for us as new people in Christ to recognize sin's presence in us. The Christian must be constantly aware of the presence and possibility of sin in their lives. You see, one of the beautiful things about the gospel is is Christ has freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. But we still need to deal as as, as, as creatures in a fallen world, we still need to deal with the presence of sin. Since power has been defeated, right? Sin's reign is no more. But sin's presence is still among us today. The penalty of sin is no more, right? We're declared not guilty before the throne of grace. Right? We've been justified by faith. We're no longer guilty before our God. And yet at the same time, there's this presence of sin in you and in me that, that we have to deal with. The accuser cannot accuse us anymore because Christ has freed us from sin. And yet sin is still creeping and crouching at the door waiting for someone to devour. And so do you, do you create moments in your life to, to reflect on sin's presence in your life? Right? Like this is, think about how do you end your day? This is something I've just been really challenged with recently. Right? Because oftentimes I'll end my day with some sort of diet of entertainment, right? An episode of something, maybe two episodes of something. 
and then I'll be so tired kind of falling asleep watching it that I just kind of stumble and fumble my way into bed, go to sleep and wake up the next day. And yet, isn't the end of day A such a great time to, to kind of reflect on what's happened, think about the day, and reflect on how sin's presence has impacted me, maybe a time of confession, time of repentance, a conversation with my wife to say, hey, honey, I, I messed up here. Will you forgive me? An opportunity to kind of reconcile with one another and with the Lord before the day's end. Not because the Lord will hold it against us while, while we sleep, but because it's just a great time that God has providentially given us at the end of the day to just reflect on, on what's happened. And if you're anything like me, I have short-term memory loss, right? I don't really think about what I did done wrong yesterday, and I've kind of forgotten it. And yet the freshness of, of yesterday might have given me insight into maybe some things that I, I needed to see as I maybe wasn't paying attention to the Spirit's work in certain areas of my life. So we, we recognize sin's presence in us, but we also resist being a temptation to others, right? Observing the call for new people to recognize sin within him is important, but look at the thrusts of Jesus' Jesus's words in verse 2. He says, but woe to the one through whom they come, ending verse 1, and then says, basically in verse 2, that it would be, it would be better for somebody to die of a mafia-like drowning than for them to lead one of these little ones into sin. Like, that's a harsh word. Think about that. It would be better for somebody to have a stone tied around their neck and they've thrown into the sea than for them to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Like, do we hear the warning of Jesus' words? Are, are we careful with how we conduct ourselves around others in the body of Christ? You see, one of the interesting things, as I've read this passage over and over uh, um, throughout the years, I've, I've always thought that little referred to children, right? Because it kind of hits the ears as children. But one of the interesting things is, is the, the, the use of this word in this context actually carries a more significant meaning than simply children. I think it includes children, but it goes much beyond children that actually help us tie into the theme of what Luke is doing as he is showing us who Jesus is around. You see, because Jesus, when he says the little ones, he's referring to the insignificant ones. It's a Greek word that's often used to, and translated as insignificant. And how, do, how can we know that? Context shows us this. Because if you look back just a few pages in Luke's gospel, you see a couple interesting things. You see poor beggars like Lazarus, like, like the, the one Lazarus ignored. You see prodigal children who have uh, turned to follow their own pleasures, returning to a father who is eager to receive them. You see lost ones who the good shepherd is seeking out. You see poor, crippled, blind, and lame who the master is inviting to the banquet. And you see ones who sit in the low seat at the banquet being told to move to the higher seat. You see, what, what Jesus is actually helping us see is that here is it's the kind of people that you and I are prone to be repulsed by or resistant toward that Christ calls us to pay attention to. It's the people that you and I are, are most prone to be repulsed by or resistant toward that Christ calls us to pay attention to. And he has a peculiar affection for them because of this warning he's giving to the disciples, which certainly includes children. But it doesn't only include children. This is a call for us to guard the lives of other people by 
examining ourselves, looking at ourselves, and seeing if there's any way that we are leading others astray. This is actually why what you say on social media matters. This is why how you conduct yourself in the public square actually matters. It's not so that you can be individually holy before the eyes of men. It's so that you can be careful that you're leading the eyes of men that are watching to the Savior and not to something else. Especially those who society deems insignificant. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. For consider your calling. He's, he's referring to how you were called to Christ, how you came to faith in him. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. So what Paul's doing, he's saying, like, you guys weren't really important when you were called to faith. You weren't wise or smart. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You, you, you hear that? Humbling the exalted, exalting the humble. Consider your calling, church. Were you so important in this world that you demanded the attention of God Almighty, the creator of the universe, to save you? Were you, were you so wise that it demanded that God save you? Like God was so impressed with your intelligence and your abilities that he just had to have you on his team. Like, like no. All of us were little ones prior to coming to faith. All of us, apart from the saving grace of Jesus, are, are lowly and, and, and in need of a Savior. Apart from the gospel of grace, we would be the very people that we are most repulsed by. And so because of the grace of the gospel, we are compelled to move near those who are low and see them lifted up. And so how can you leverage your, your relationships to remind you where God has called you from? Like how can you remind yourself of the, of the depths of sin that you are in? That Christ lifted you out of so that you might show mercy to those who are in those spaces and in those places today so that you might see them lifted out by Christ's mercy. New people are watchful of temptation. Of recognizing temptation in themselves and, and being a temptation to others. And new people also respond to sin in love. Look at verses 3 through 4. There's this, there's this expectation in Jesus. I love this because, you know, when people sin against me in the church, I'm kind of surprised by it. Like, why would you do that? You know, and, and I think when people sin against us in the church, including those in our own home, right, because I, I share the house with a wife who's also a member of, a, of the church, and I sin against her and, and she against me, and we're both members of Christ's body together. But Jesus actually has, in verses 3 through 4, an expectation that insiders will sin against one another. Who's he warning? He's warning the disciples. He's not warning those outside of his influence. He's, he's warning his closest friends. And he says, if, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. New people respond to sin in a love that, that, that rebukes, in a, in a love that corrects. It's a, a bold love. It's a, it's a love that's willing to tell others in the church to come back to the Lord when they notice them wandering from the faith. When, when you see somebody like not showing up for a while and you're like, man, where are they at? 
instead of, you know, going to community groups and be like, man, I wonder where they're at. You know, I, I've seen some of the stuff they posted on social media, and ah, they're, they're going down a slippery slope. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. They're going down a slippery slope. The, the scriptures actually call us to engage and lean into that person, not passively critique them from a distance, but to lean in and get in their lives. Our response to sin should move us toward one another, not away from one another. And so are, are, there's kind of two, two, two questions on here, right? Like, are there people in your life who, who can lean into your life when you're prone to wander? And are you willing to lean into the lives of others when, when they wander? Right? This is a, a love that corrects, a love that rebukes. When the, when the pressure for you to keep and, and nurture destructive habits and thoughts and desires in private, do you, do you lean on the church confessing your sins to one another? Have, have you made yourself known here? Like, do people know you? Or you just kind of slip in and slip out? Have you, have you given members of the church insight into how they can speak into your life? Sins that you're prone to struggle with specifically, right? Like not speaking in vague generalities that we can't understand. But being specific, identifying ways that you're prone to slip. Conversations about specific sins in the lives of members of the church should be a, a normal practice, not a rare one. And so, brother or sister in Christ, when, when someone sins against you in the body, how do you, how do you respond? Do you, do you grumble or complain to others? Do you kind of allow bitterness to fester in your heart as you just kind of passively try to ignore them? Or do you maybe just like leave the church and, and go to another one because someone hurt you and, and there's, you don't want to lean in? Jesus tells us here that, that he wants us to lean in, to, to call one another to Christ in times of wandering. And here's the thing. He gives us a really unique scenario here, right? This is like, Bryant, I'm like, hi, I miss you. But like, if, if I were to sin against Bryant, and then I go to Bryant and reconcile with him, right? That's the situation. It's not, this isn't a situation where I sin against Bryant, and he comes after me and is like, hey, man, you hurt me. But Jesus gives us specifically, this is a situation where I see what I did wrong, and I go in repentance, and as you and I know, like if you've been around the church, and uh, you know, not everybody is, is, is that open to seeing their own mistakes, or they, they, they just might miss it, right? There are times when I'm sinned against or when you're sinned against. Perhaps I've even sinned against you personally, and I, I just don't know. And, and, and Jesus actually gives us an example of what to do in that kind of situation in Matthew 18, right? And so I want to encourage you to look at Matthew 18 15 through 20, not right now, but, but later. Write that down, because that's a situation where the, uh, the one who was offended goes to the offender. This is a situation where the offender goes to the offended. But what, what we see here is this really, really interesting thing that, that happens, right? I, I don't know about you, but I've never had somebody come to me seven times in a day saying, I, I repent. And I've never had somebody sin against me seven times a day and then turn around and do that, right? Like if somebody did that, that would feel kind of just not authentic, right? And so, like, we, we know Jesus is exaggerating here to make a point. He's, he's using hyperbole. And, and what's the point? What's he trying to get at? Jesus wants our zeal to forgive to meet our zeal to correct. Think about that for a moment. Like, how often are you more zealous to correct somebody in sin than you are to forgive them? Or maybe in your passive moments, like, like me, you're more prone to forgive someone than to correct them. And you're more zealous to forgive them, like, ah, it's fine, like, the Lord will figure it out. I have faith. But you're not leaning into that person relationally to see them restored in the gospel. 
does our zeal to correct and our, our zeal to forgive, are they, are they equal? Or, or is there some sort of kind of disproportionate desire to, to correct than to forgive, right? Like we've all met that person who just wants to point fingers and, and not be merciful. But we also know the person who just wants to be merciful and not, not have any of those difficult spaces or difficult conversations in those difficult spaces. And so what we see here is that there, there's not just a love that, that rebukes, it's a love that forgives, right? This is a situation where a Christ-following disciple is sinned against by another brother, somebody in the church. The offense comes from within. The offending disciple is repentant. There's sin, sin has been called out. They see it. They desire to reconcile. They go to the person, right? Like I go to Brian and I say, hey, please forgive me. This is, this is something I did. I did this. I, I wronged you. I slandered you when you weren't in the room. Will you please forgive me? And the disciple who was sinned against is commanded to forgive a brother or sister. Where repentance is expressed in the family of faith, forgiveness is commanded. Think about that. Have you ever considered that forgiveness toward a repentant brother or sister in the faith is not optional for us? It's commanded. Like That's a hard word for me. As I think about ways that I've been bitter toward my brothers and sisters in Christ, even brothers or sisters in Christ who've apologized to me, come to me and tried to reconcile. I hold this, this bitterness in me, in my spirit against them, where I'm just kind of inclined to be a little awkward or weird, or, or I just use kind of shorter sentences when I'm around them because I want to get out of the conversation rather than get in, right? But what we see here is that, that forgiveness isn't optional. It's not something that we do only when we feel like it. If someone who has offended us is repentant, we are commanded to grant forgiveness to them by Jesus himself. Is there someone you've sinned against in this church? Go to them. Is there there someone you've talked about behind their back? Go to them. Confess this. Be zealous to reconcile with one another? Is there someone you've been filled with rage against because of something they posted online? Go to them. Or maybe there's something that you've posted and somebody's come and expressed their hurt to you and you've dismissed it. Perhaps this would be a great day to to call them up, shoot them a text, grab some coffee or have them over and reconcile. Don't be surprised when others sin against you. The Bible Bible tells us that this will happen. And yet when that pain comes, be as zealous to correct as you are zealous to forgive. And be very zealous to do both. The church is a place where the forgiving grace of the gospel permeates its way into our personal relationships. Can we, can we say that that is true of our personal relationships in the church? That the gospel of grace permeates and makes its way into, saturates its way into all of our relationships in the church so that our posture toward one another in sin reflects the Savior's posture toward us in sin. A love that corrects and a love that forgives. So often we talk about fighting for our own individual purity and holiness in Christ. And this passage shows us that there is a God-given role for each and every single person in this room to fight for the purity and holiness of others. We don't just fight for our own individual progress in the gospel. We fight for the progress of others in the gospel. 
some of the most painful, painful experiences that I've had in my entire life have been through relational difficulty in the church. Right? Brothers and sisters who have wronged me or I have wronged, and it creates pain and sorrow and difficulty. And in those moments, I've noticed that my own willingness to forgive has exceeded my willingness to correct. Or more often, my willingness to correct has exceeded my willingness to forgive. And so, and so if, if, if there is anyone in here where I've, I've had that with, please make that known to me so I can reconcile. And if there's anyone in here that you've done that with, go to them so that you can reconcile. The next few verses, we, 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 we see this interesting interaction, right? Like, this, what we've just talked about is really difficult, amen? Like, can we just agree that that's not easy to reconcile and walk in hard relational spaces and, and confess sin and call out sin in a way that reflects Jesus? Can I, can I just get an amen that that's difficult? Yeah, absolutely it's difficult. And so the disciples hear these words of Jesus, and what, what do they say? The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Like, they knew, they heard these words, like, we can't do that on our own. Like, I don't have the power to be that kind to others. I don't have the power to be that loving to others. Increase our faith, Lord. And Jesus responds with this amazing, amazing truth. That it's not the the amount of our faith that matters. That we actually don't grow in obedience as we just kind of muster up a stronger faith, a bigger faith. But Jesus actually tells us a very small and a very weak faith has the power to do miraculous and surprising things. The emphasis that Jesus is helping us see in verses 5 and 6 is that as new people, we walk by faith. But that faith is not measured by its strength. It's measured by its object. It's measured by its object. J.C. Ryle, as he writes about the difficulty of the Christian life and the necessity of faith, he, he says this, Would anyone live the life of a Christian soldier? Do you want to live the life of a Christian soldier? That's what he's asking. Let him pray for faith. It is the gift of God and a gift which those who ask shall never ask in vain. Meaning that prayer is never wasted and always answered. You want an answer to prayer? Pray for some faith. God loves to answer that prayer. You must believe before you do, Ryle says. If men do nothing in religion, it is because they do not believe. Faith is the first step toward heaven. If we love life, we must guard the measure of the faith the Lord Jesus has has granted to us, has given to us. And yet, the strength of faith is not in its amount, right? It's in Jesus who our faith points to. Right Here we see that clinging to Jesus in weakness yields mighty results. It's because Christ himself holds you far more tightly than you could ever hold on to him in faith. You ever thought about that before? That Jesus himself can hold you far more tightly than you ever could hold him in faith. The strength of faith is in its object, the one it points to, not in its amount The object is Christ himself. And so if you want to cultivate a life of faith, if you want to grow in your confidence in Jesus, cling to Jesus. He can work with that. He can work with your weak and weary, tired and imperfect faith. He wants to work with that faith. He longs to work with that faith. 
Do you, do you want to be a witness for the kingdom that the gates of hell cannot prevail against? That the, the greatest powers of evil in this world cannot stand against or conquer over? Run to the Savior who works with the weak of this world and leverages it to shame the strong. Great faith in the Scriptures is not described as this mighty flame that burns with power from itself. Great faith in the Scriptures is a small flame held by the great Savior who loved us and gave Himself for us. And it is a flickering wick that our Savior will never put out. And He will fan it into a flame of supernatural obedience. Just like a small seed grows into a mighty tree. Small faith in the hands of our Savior does incredible things. And so do not be discouraged if you find your faith weak or strained this morning. If you come in here tired and weary and beating, beaten down, doubting the integrity, doubting the goodness of your Savior, do not be discouraged. Turn your eyes to Jesus this morning. Look at him. He's not repulsed by you in your weakness. He's he's calling you in your weakness to come to him. He's not appalled by your sinful wandering to the point where he holds you at a distance. In fact, he is so driven to move near to you in weakness that your weakness compels him all the more. It's the very weaknesses of your faith in Christ that compel Jesus to be near to you. As we were leaving our condo in Virginia uh, last Sunday to drive up here, it was about 4.30 in the, a- it was about uh, like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern time. We like to drive through the night so that my crazy kids can sleep a little bit. Um, and we're kind of packing. You know, we had done a lot before. It was like the first time that we ever like packed before and weren't frantically like going nuts. So I was going to come home, do a few things, uh, and, and take a nap, right? Because it's good to sleep. So you want to sleep before you drive through the night so you don't hurt anybody. And um, so we're kind of packing our things together, and I'm about to eat some lunch, but want to take out the trash because, you know, that's what you do before you leave for a long time. You make sure all the nasty stuff is out of the house. And as I'm kind of pushing down on the trash, I feel this pain in my thumb, and I pull back, and my my thumb is, like, gushing out blood. Uh, And it's like, you know, just I hit an artery, and it was was terrible. Um, it It didn't hurt a ton, but as my wife would attest to, I mean, she's cleaning blood off of, like, the microwave that's close to the ceiling, and, I mean, it was a mess. And so, like, two hours before we come here, I'm in the ER getting stitches in my thumb uh, to, to, you know, (laughs) stop the bleeding and and get on the road. And I came home, and I looked at my wife, and I was so pumped full of adrenaline. I was like, let's just go. And by God's grace, we left an hour earlier than we thought we were going to. So, but over this last week, the weakest part of my body has demanded the most of my attention. nursed it i've wrapped it i've like slept weird so i didn't like roll over on it right i didn't cut off my thumb because it was weak and say you're useless i don't need you anymore no the the weakness of my body part the this part of my body actually drove me and compelled me to give it more attention more care more love more nurturing not less In the same way, the love of Christ is drawn toward us in weakness, not not away from us. He doesn't cut us off and say, I'm done with you. You failed again. No, he, he nurtures us. He comes near to us. He builds us up. 
This is because Christ's love is not like our love. Amen? Like, praise God for that. While we might be prone to reject the weak, Christ moves near to them. While we are repulsed by sinners, Christ dies for them. While we seek to hide in weakness and shame, Christ seeks us out in love. His love is not like ours. Dane Ortland, in his book, reflecting on this idea in Gentle and Lowly, uh, which is a phenomenal book, I'd encourage you to pick it up. He writes this, Jesus does not love like us. We love until we are betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. He loves to the end, church. And finally, verses 7 through 10, faith in Christ causes a faithfulness to Christ. Christ promises to work faithfulness in us as we cling to him in faith. And verses 7 through 10 point us to the aim of our faithfulness, which is the glory of the master himself, right? New people live to please the master. And so we see this interesting parable where there's a slave who's working in a field, probably as a shepherd or a farmhand, which would have been way more difficult in a world of uh, less tractors and motorized equipment. You're doing everything by hand, right? This slave would have been exhausted. He comes in, and the master says, hey, you can get some rest. No, he doesn't. He says, prepare my dinner. The slave prepares his dinner, and the master says, let me eat first. You get dressed, and then you can come eat after I'm done. And then Jesus says this really, really interesting thing at the end. He says, does, does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And he says, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. What's the point? Jesus isn't saying it's illegal or wrong to thank other Christians for good stuff. That's not what he's saying. What, what's actually happening in this passage is that the, the, Jesus is showing through telling this account that the, the master owes absolutely nothing to the slave for their obedience. He doesn't, he's not in special debt to the slave for this kind of service. It, maybe the slave went above and beyond his job description. It doesn't mean that the master is indebted to that slave. Does that make sense? Right? The master's not, not indebted to the slave. He doesn't owe the slave anything. In the same way, God doesn't owe you anything for your obedience. He doesn't owe me anything for my obedience. Right? We were created to follow Jesus. Genesis 1.26 tells us we were made in the image of God. We were made to rule and reign like God-given representatives in this world. We were meant to reflect the glory of our creator in everything we do. So when we nail it in reflecting the glory of our creator in everything we do, he owes us nothing. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Though God owes us absolutely nothing for our obedience, he gives us absolutely everything. Everything. I know I'm a little over time, but I, I, I just want to give you a picture for the rich inheritance that awaits those of us who are in Christ. A beautiful picture of the, the wealth of God's generosity to those he doesn't owe a thing to. Because that is the gospel, right? God has given to us what we do not deserve or earn, amen? And listen to the rich inheritance awaiting God's people that we get a taste of now and will receive in full when Christ returns.
it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, that, they may, that he may teach us his ways and that we might walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see that call to obedience after this rich display of what God has for his people? That's Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, which tells us that this is a group of people prepared as a bride. This is the church coming down. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Listen to this. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have his heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That's Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, which will be no more. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, here it is. Therefore, my beloved brothers, remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not worthless, church, because we have an inheritance coming, a rich inheritance that we do not deserve. And so Paul, as he closes what is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible in Romans 8, 31 through 39, says this to the church at Rome. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn us? Christ, Jesus, is the one who died. 
more than that who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Church, should tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, certain, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Though we are owed absolutely nothing for our obedience, the Father promised the glory of his presence. Even when we were incapable of that obedience, the Spirit has been sent to us to equip us and fashion us and help us desire obedience. Though we deserve to sit under the wrath of a pure and holy God, He decided to send His Son so that that wrath might be taken up in Him and we might have new life in His resurrection as we too are raised to life with Christ. Not only are we motivated to please the master because it's our job, it's the bare minimum of what Christ calls us to, which should be sufficient to stir us to obedience. But we are so richly blessed beyond our imaginations. Taste and see his goodness, church. Feast on the goodness of his promises for you, church, and walk step-by-step in obedience and unity to what he has called you to. Don't be ashamed to walk as new people, as different people, as people who do not act or live or look or sound like your neighbors. Do not be ashamed to walk in the new creation he's made you to be. Don't be afraid to be weird a little bit for the gospel. Don't shrink back from the separation that this creates between you and the world. Instead, leverage that separation not to shun those who reject Christ, but instead to love your enemies and offer to them this grace over and over and over again. Remain watchful of temptation. Respond to sin and love. Walk in faith and do it all to please the master. Live as the new people God has called you to be. Let's pray. Father, I I love these people. There, There is no group of people that I have more affection for more hope for, more of a desire for. God, I want to see the the Spirit do amazing things in this church. I want to see the the people of God rise up and take a bold stand for the gospel in a world that is hostile to you. I want to see relationships restored. God, I I, I long to see uh, uh, grievances and pain healed and mended. Discord and disunity made whole and one. Lord Jesus, you you prayed for us to be one as you and the Father are one. And so we we pray that same unity over this church right now. God, please raise up servants of Christ who will live obediently to you. God, let us walk in the newness of life that you've given to us. And help us to love you fiercely. In Jesus' name, amen.